Uh, as we get started this morning, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we're going to be this morning as we move into our 23rd week of this 50-week series that we're doing all throughout this year called Read Scripture in 2021, where we're surveying the Bible from cover to cover in the hopes of really growing in our understanding of God's Word. And, and as you do, as you get there, I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we ask the Holy Spirit of God to bless our time together this morning. And so as I always do, I want to invite you, encourage you, consider your posture before God. Stand, kneel, raise hands, something else. Uh, let's, let's talk to the, the maker of all that is and give glory to him. <clears throat> Most righteous Father in heaven, uh, today as we take time to, to remember and think about all the dads in our lives and the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers and people who have been like fathers to us, we recognize, first and foremost, Lord, that you are the ultimate father, that it was you who, who knit us together in our mother's wombs. It was you who, who breathed the breath of life into our lungs. It was you who fearfully and wonderfully made us, each and every one of us, specifically and uniquely us. And I just want to thank you for that, Father. I want to thank you for all of my brothers and sisters in this room who, because they were fearfully and wonderfully made by you, have poured into me and have blessed me and bless this church and this community and, and the city that, that, that we're surrounded by, Father. Lord, you, you knew what you were doing when you made each and every one of us. And so I want to praise you and glorify you today. Lord, as we... We get ready to, to dig into Ecclesiastes, Father. I pray that, that every word spoken here would not be mine. They would be yours. And if there's something in our heart that needs to hear what, what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying today, Father, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. And may you be glorified. May your spirit move in this place. And would you do something to change our lives today? That's my prayer. And I pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Happy Father's Day to you as well. Amen. <clears throat> you know, one, one of the things that's always puzzled me is, is how we, we kind of revere and think about and honor our legends. I'm talking about those people who've, who've made an impact on the masses in our, our world and in our culture. I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider how strange it is that we, we basically allow, you know, one or maybe two decades of our lives so often to, to shape and define who we are for the rest of our lives. Case in point, like if you're a Major League Baseball legend, uh, long, long after you've hung up your cleats at the age of 30 or, or maybe 35, if you're really good, you're going to be honored. You're going to be honored at reunion events. You're going to be honored at autograph sessions. You're going to be honored with TV and radio appearances and more. And what will the focus be for those conversations? What will people want to talk to you about? Well, they'll, they'll talk to you about what you did between the ages of 20 and about 30, maybe 35, if you're really good. But for the rest of your life, you're going to relive the, that 10 or 15 year window of your life. If you're a music legend, long after you've stopped making popular music that, that fills stadiums and arenas full of adoring fans, you're going to be honored with appearances at, at county fairs, and appearances in, in local small concert venues and TV radio appearances as well and more. 
And what will people want you to sing? What will they want you, what, what will they want to hear? They want you to sing songs that you wrote between the ages of, of 20 and 30 years of age, often before you grew up, often before you got married and had kids and fought addictions and so much more. For the rest of your life, you're going to relive that 10 or 15 year window where everybody knew your name. And I could go on because this would be true for just about anything. It'd be true for actors. It'd be true for Olympians. It would even be true of like military veterans. And I've always found this phenomenon strange. But, but now as I get older and, and I look in the mirror and I'm acquiring more gray hair in my, in my head and in my beard, that, that disparity is slowly becoming even more pronounced. Because even though it wasn't that long ago, I remember who I was in my youth. I remember who I was in my 20s, and while it was fun, and it was great, and it was memorable all the same, I also look back and I recognize how, how little I knew, and how foolish I was, and how much life there still is to come after those, those initial glory years when you're in the best shape of your life and all that stuff. But there's this whole other rich life. And so isn't it strange that, that when we talk to our legends, the people who might now have 50 or 60 or 70 or, or possibly even more years under their belt of life experience, isn't it weird that we continue to obsess about who they were and what they did when they were in their 20s? What would it look like for our legends to lean into their gray hair? What would it look like for our legends to, to use their platforms to, to speak a new truth, the kind of truth that's found only through the, the living of life and all the inevitable scars that living that life brings. These last several weeks, we, we've spent time in a myriad of different stories, as you know. We, we talked about the satire that I think Job is. We talked about the allegory that I think uh, jo Job is. Jonah and then Job. I always mix those two up. And then beginning uh, this last week, we started to turn our attention to three books three pieces of literature known as, as the, the wisdom literature or the books of Solomon. And uh, they're attributed to this famous wise man in all of scripture, King Solomon. And I like what one person's perspective was on these three books of his. They suggested that, that one way to think about Solomon's writings might be this, that, that Proverbs is kind of like the, the wisdom of Solomon maybe in a young adulthood. And the Song of Solomon is maybe the, the wisdom of Solomon in like middle adulthood. It deals with love and marriage and relationships and then maybe Ecclesiastes is the wisdom of Solomon in the rearview mirror at the end of adulthood as he's looking back and reflecting on the highs and lows and everything in between of his life. And so as we think about Father's Day this morning, I want to say, number one, that I'm over overwhelmingly thankful for an amazing father that, that I've had, a man who has taught me a lot more than he thinks he has, a lot more than he realizes that he has about what it means to be a godly man and how to live for God and honor him and all that I do. I'm so blessed to have the father that I have. And so happy Father's Day, Dad, if you're watching right now. I, I really do appreciate you because I wouldn't be standing here today if it wasn't for him. He made that kind of impact on my faith. But another thing struck me this week as I read through and, and I prayed over Ecclesiastes, particularly as the, the author directs his attention to things that are, that are gained only through years of life experience with, with all the joy and all the sorrow that it brings. And that's this. I realized how, how much I missed out by, by not being able to have a relationship of substance with my grandfathers. 
You know, on my, on my mom's side, my, my grandfather was long gone before I was a twinkle in anybody's eye. I never had a chance to know him. And on my, my dad's side, uh, my grandfather was, was really just not very well when I was a kid. I, I think he, he was battling some depression, and physically he was not in very good shape or good health. And so, you know, there were like two or three occasions a year where we would drive over to, to Santa Clara to see him, or we'd drive to Sacramento where they later lived to, to visit. And I'd go in his room, and I'd sit with him as he watched TV, or he, he was a big 49er fan, so he, he might be watching a 49er game or whatever. But I never got a chance to, to really know him in the way that you truly hope to know somebody, especially somebody who's your grandfather, somebody who's part of your family. And then one day when I was just about 10 years old, we got a call that he had gone and laid down for a nap in the middle of the day. And there in that nap, he passed away peacefully and never woke up. And that opportunity was gone. So I never got a chance to sit with him and, and to learn about life from his perspective. I, n- I never got any advice that, that I remember that made an impact on me, and none of that. And so like many of our legends, I, I've, I've heard lots of stories about him in his younger years, about how he was a, a Marine in World War II, about how he was a, a man of, of imposing physical stature, about how he, he owned a bird shop once upon a time in Sunnyvale, he just sold all these birds. But I never learned anything about the man that he was at like 65, shortly before he passed away. And I wish I could have because there, there was probably a lot I could have learned from life from him if I had just, if he had just talked and if I had been able to listen, but I never got that opportunity. And so what I wasn't able to get from him, I think the writer of Ecclesiastes pours out to all of us in spades. And so this is a, an incredibly special book to me. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're in my small group, you've heard this story before, so bear with me. If you're not, you may have heard this story before because I've been doing this enough now that I'm starting to lose track of all the stories that I've told over the years, but bear with me. There was this night when I was about 18 years old, and uh, I'll never forget it, and it's not because of anything specific that happened in my life. There wasn't like this trigger moment for me or anything, but it was just because of where my, my head and my heart was that night. And uh, I'd been at Tiffany's house until late, one Saturday night, and, and I, as I was leaving her house, I just remember being like totally spooked, totally freaked out, and in my head about stuff as I, as I wrestled with this new reality that had like really taken hold in my head and my heart for the very first time, and that was this. I was not immortal. It was like really, really like becoming real for me. It was one of the first times I remember truly being confronted with the notion that one day, I'm not going to be here anymore. And it's, it's one thing to know that intellectually up here. I think we all, we all know that. But it's another thing altogether to internalize it and to feel that in the depths of who you are in your soul. And so that night, that became very, very real for me. And so I, I drove home at what, what must have been like midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And I, my dad and I were, were living in this apartment at the time, just the two of us. And I remember walking in and, and he had long since gone to bed, so I, I couldn't go to him for, for any sense of comfort. I, I had nobody to talk to, and I just remember thinking, like, man, I've, I've got to have, have some way to bring some comfort to myself because I feel like I'm about to pass out. I feel like I'm about to faint. This is really scary to me. And, and I'll never forget that I came in my room, and I picked up my Bible, and I started thumbing through the pages. Like, I have no idea what I'm going to read. I have no idea where to go to find the kind of comfort that I need to find right now. But as I started thumbing through the pages, I saw this interesting word, a word that I'd seen before, but I knew nothing about. I'd, I'd never read 
this book before, and it was the book Ecclesiastes. And I just remember thinking to myself, I have no idea, no idea what Ecclesiastes is about. But now's as good a time as any. Like, let's find out. So I started reading. And all I have to say is that what I read that night changed my life. It, it truly changed my life, and it comforted me in ways that, that only Jesus knew that I needed to be comforted. Ecclesiastes took my greatest fear. And with the, the, the heart and tone of a loving grandfather, the kind of grandfather I didn't get a chance to speak to, and the precision of a surgeon, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, an hour later I closed that book with a renewed heart, and I have never looked back with, with that same fear ever again. And so this is an incredibly powerful and special book to me. And as I look back, what's so interesting and ironic to me is that this is not an uplifting kind of book. It's not the kind of book that makes you go like, oh, I feel really good. Like that was really warm and, and fuzzy. No, the tone of this book is not a tone of encouragement, but, but of sobering realism. And only Jesus, only the Holy Spirit knew that what I needed to hear that night was like honest, sobering realism. I didn't know that, but that's what I needed to hear. The kind of stuff you get only from a grandfather. And so again, if you don't have your Bibles open, I invite you to have your Bible open to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's roughly in the middle of your Bible. It's after Proverbs, before the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, as your Bibles might call it. And as the text opens, we're introduced to a character called Koheleth, or what your Bibles may call teacher or preacher. And it's a word that we, we don't completely understand. But it, but it seems to carry with it some notion of like a, a wise sage, a wise teacher. And so verse 1 says that Koheleth is a son of David, and he, he's a king in Jerusalem, which is why this is traditionally attributed to King Solomon, and as he was David's son, and he was a king in Jerusalem. And so here's what Koheleth has to say in verse 2. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything, everything is meaningless. You can see why I say this is not exactly an uplifting kind of book. I don't know how many people start to read a book and want to be confronted in the second sentence with the meaninglessness of life. But that's what he has to say, at least kind of. There's actually a visual that this word meaningless is supposed to provide us with because it's not, it's not technically meaningless. That's not what the Hebrew word there means. It's more like, like breath and, and vapor. Um, sometimes you see it presented as like smoke, but I, I don't think that's quite the, the most accurate understanding of it. I think it's more specifically like what you get when you go outside on a really cold day and you exhale and you see that, that, that breath, that vapor, come out of your, your lips and out of your lungs for the first time. It's like it's there, and you can see it, and it's real, but then what? It's gone, just like that. That's kind of the sense of what Koheleth is saying. And he says, everything, everything is that. Everything is like breath on a cold day. It's just here, and it's gone. And so if you're already confused and you're thinking to yourself, okay, what does he mean when he says that? He begins to tell you. And so as you read, he, he looks at the, these endless 
train of, of generation after generation after generation. He looks at the, the cycles of sunrise and sunset and sunrise and sunset. He looks at the, the streams that, that flow into the ocean, and yet he notices that the ocean does not fill up. He looks at the wind that continually blows and blows and blows. And what he wants us to understand is that through all of these endless cycles and endless patterns and endless iterations, he says nothing truly new ever emerges. There's nothing truly new. He says what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, uh, there's something new. He says, no, it, it was here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered to those who follow them. And it's interesting because there's, there's something about the human heart that so deeply wants to make an impact, that so deeply wants to be remembered. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that, that, that God has put eternity on the human heart. We want to be remembered. And so if you walk around sports stadiums and you walk around arenas, what do we do? We erect statues of all of our legends to be remembered. And if you walk around Washington, D.C., we erect monuments to our founding fathers. And if you walk around college campuses, we name buildings after large donors. And if you drive through the mission, you're going to pass Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. And if you pay attention to the name of our city, it's, it's named to remember St. Francis of Assisi. Like Memorials like this are everywhere because we want to be people of significance. We want to be people who are remembered, and yet Koheleth has this sobering reminder that for nearly all of us, we will be forgotten. How does he know? He begins to tell us in verse 12. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. <laughs> what a heavy burden! God has laid on mankind. He says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless. They're, they're like breath, they're vapor that is here and then it's gone. It's a chasing after the wind. And so initially he begins to say that he thought about that maybe the pursuit of wisdom and understanding about life might bring some, some lasting meaning to his life. But he says, at the end of the day, all it did was give him knowledge of, of all the grief and pain and sorrow that's in the world. And he says, I looked at that, and that was meaningless. That was, that was just vapor that disappears. And so he says, next, I turned my attention to, to pleasure, to folly, right? I wanted to have fun. I wanted to enjoy the alcohol and, and building projects. And so he bought slaves and livestock. He gathered treasure and women. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. But when he stepped back and he looked at that, he says that too was just meaningless. It was just vapor that's here and then it's gone. And so he realizes, he says, that the pursuit of pleasure is foolishness. It's folly. And that, that wisdom, at least, was better than that. It was better to seek understanding. And yet he says, but what does it profit me? What does it profit me still, whether, whether you're a, a foolish person or a wise person or even an animal? Because he says the same end, the same fate awaits us all. Neither or both will be remembered. Neither will be remembered. 
And so even as wisdom is better than foolishness, he says it still falls short of like that tangible meaning. And so he begins to look at his work or his toil, as he calls it, and he thinks maybe that will give his life something tangible, something to, to grasp onto. But he begins to see all these other problems that emerge. He says, I realize I can, I can work really, really hard and I can accomplish all these great things, but at the end of the day, when I'm gone, what happens to it? It just gets left to somebody else who won't appreciate it, who won't care for it, who, who didn't earn all the scrapes and the bruises and the broken bones and the blisters and, and the anxiety and the grief and the sorrow, all the things that it took to accomplish the task. It just gets left to somebody who has no concept of what I went through to do it. And so he says, all of this hard work, all of this drive, all of this motivation, it just originates from man's desire to keep up with the Joneses anyway. All of it is, is brought about because of envy for neighbor. And so he looks at the fruits of all of his stress, of all of his labor, all of his worry, what it, what it produced. And he realizes it's not tangible either. It's, it's not something that can be held on to or grasped. That it too is just vapor. It's here and then whew, it disappears. My wife thinks this is a really sobering not a very fun book to read. I mean, can you blame her? <laughs> and so all along the way, over and over and over again, you can see this, this tired and wise grandfather-like figure revisit all of these things that he did in his younger years to bring meaning to his life. And every time he speaks, he's clawing and clawing and clawing for something that he can be in control of. And I'm just curious, how many of you realize that he's describing you, that he's describing all of us. Because Kohelis' pursuits are our pursuits, or at least some era of our life. This might describe you. Because the fact of the matter, church, is that his pursuits are our pursuits. They, they might be, be, have different labels, they might have different implementations, but they're us. And so think about, think about your youth, when we're young, what do we do? We go to school, and we work, and we work, and we work. Why? So that we can get into the top universities, top schools. And when we get there, we finally accomplish that. We work, and we work, and we work. Why? So that we can land the top job. And when we get there, what do we do? We work, and we work, and we work so that we can get bigger and bigger incomes, so that we can buy bigger and better houses and boats and, and, and all kinds of stuff and, and be able to afford the, the private schools and the private tutors, all so that we can ensure what? that our kids can go to school and they can work and they can work and work and land in a, in a top college where they work and work and work to get the top job and the big income and the boats and all that stuff. You get the idea, right? What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And so we go into our workplaces, especially here in the city and in the San Francisco Bay Area where it's dog eat dog and People fight for this promotion, and they fight for that promotion, and they watch as other people take credit for the hard work that they did, and sometimes, if we're honest, maybe we're taking credit for the hard work that somebody else did, and we all want to be the best, and the smartest, and the most disciplined, and the most driven, and the hardest working, all so that we gain the approval of other people. And then we go and we open up our phone and we look into our investment portfolios and we see how much wealth we've amassed, and we try to conspire about all the ways that we might amass more never having enough, never being content, always wanting to have more than our neighbors. 
And I'm just curious, raise your hand if deep down in the recesses of your heart and your soul, if you found yourself falling into that pattern, trying to, to acquire more. I know I have. And the rest of you didn't raise your hand. I kind of think you're lying, but you know. <laughs> and so you might listen to this and, and think to yourself, okay, Josh, I hear you, but, but what, what is the alternative? Does Kohela think that, that working hard is just pointless? Is that what he's saying? Does he want me to be lazy? Is that what the wise sage has learned through all his, his years of life and living in gray hair? Just laziness? Is that what it is? And the answer is no. No, not quite. But what he's learned is that there's a right way and a wrong way to approach the work that we do. I invite you to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 5. And, and I want to say I, I appreciate Tim Mackey, who I think did a, a fantastic job of explaining some really, really powerful and important imagery in these two verses. But if you look at, at chapter 4, verse 5 and verse 6, what you'll notice is that three times the teacher, or Koheleth, is going to use the word hand or handful. He's talking about hands. And when you think about work, uh, work is synonymous with hands. What, what do you do work with? You, you work with your hands, right? It's important. Hands matter. And so he's going to talk about hands, but each time he's going to use a different word. Like in English, when we talk about hands, how many words do we have? Hand, right? But in Hebrew, there's many, many, many words for hand that all have slightly different meaning. And so verse 5, he says, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. And this word that he's using here is actually a word that, that means from, from fingertip down to elbow. It's actually the, like the measurement of a cubit. It's a, it's a forearm. And so what happens when we, we fold our hands? Do it with me. What kind of posture is this? It's a, it's a posture of, of stubbornness and obstinance. It's a, it's a refusal to work, right? It's laziness. And so what does he call people who fold their hands? He says they're fools. They're fools and they ruin themselves. And so he continues, verse 6. He says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And again, both times, handful. Two different words in Hebrew. The first word that is used here is a word that means something more like open palm. Everybody put your hand out like this. It's like an open palm, an open hand. He says, better is one hand open, one palm open with tranquility, with peace, than two hands with toil. And this time when he talks about two hands, this, this term hand that he's using is no longer an open palm, but go like this. It's like a closed fist, the kind of fist that claws and claws and claws, trying to grasp more and more and more, never content, never having enough, the kind of hand that just wants to gain an upper hand, pun intended. And so, stepping back from it all, he's saying, you know, laziness and obstinance, that's, that's foolish, but he says clawing violently, trying to acquire more and more and more, he says, that's just chasing after the wind. That vapor is just going, and you're, you're chasing it, but you'll never grasp it. He says, the better way to live, 
the better way to work is with, with one hand, one palm that is open. Because that totally changes your posture toward life and how you do what you do. And so when you go back and you, and you look throughout Ecclesiastes, especially if you did your reading this week, and I hope you did, um, you begin to notice these little nuggets, these little breadcrumbs that the teacher, that Koheleth, was leaving all along the way. What has he been saying all throughout the first half of the book of Ecclesiastes? Look at chapter 2, verse 24. He says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. He says, This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is a gift of God. Chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Chapter 5, verse 18. He says, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given them, for this is their lot. And moreover, when God gives someone wealth, when God gives someone possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. And i got to tell you, what he's describing is the difference between one open palm with tranquility versus two closed fists, always clawing, always grasping for more and for control. And so if Ecclesiastes and Koheleth want us to understand anything, it's that we're not in control about anything, ever. We're not in control despite our miserable and sometimes meaningless efforts. And so he says, that, you know, there's a time for all these things, right? This is chapter 3, verse 1. He says, there's a time for everything. And a season for every activity under the heavens. He says, there, there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to, to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. But here's the thing, church. Do we choose those times? We don't often get to choose those times. We don't choose when we're born, do we? We don't choose often when we die. We don't choose when we weep. We don't choose when we mourn. God chooses those things most of the time. And yet, with the benefit of wisdom and hindsight, Koheleth doesn't get caught up in the, in the pain and misery as something for us to run away from and flee from. He says, when those times come, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything. And I got to tell you, these words in Ecclesiastes were life-giving to me this week. As I was navigating a situation that was, that was personal to me with someone that, that I love deeply, that has caused a, a great deal of heartache uh, within my soul, heartache that's it's completely out of my control. Because every instinct within me in times like this is to try to find some way to acquire control, 
some way for, to, to make the situation go the way that I want it to go. And Ecclesiastes reminds me, Josh, there's a time to grieve, a time to mourn, and there will hopefully be a time to heal and a time to build and a time to laugh once again, but it's not yours to control. And so as Koheleth begins to, to wrap up all that he's learned, he's going to, to turn his attention or his gaze to God. And I just want to read these words because these are the words that gave me life that night as a scared 18-year-old kid. This is the sum of the matter from this grandfather-like figure at the end of Ecclesiastes. This is chapter 11, verse 7. I definitely invite you to read along with me. But this is what Koheleth says. He says, Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. It's vapor. It's here and then it's gone. And so you who are young, be happy while you are young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart. Cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are vapor. They're meaningless. And so remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, says Koheleth. Everything is meaningless. Everything is vapor. Those words gave me life and goosebumps as an 18-year-old kid. And all these years later, they still touch a nerve in my soul. I don't know if it touches you the way that it touches me, but if there's one thing, one reminder, one action that I think Ecclesiastes invites us to remember and, and put into effect in our lives, it's this. Extinguish the fire to acquire. Embrace the grace of God. Say with me. Extinguish the fire to acquire. Embrace the grace of God. Here's what I mean. Deep down inside every one of us, there's probably some desire to acquire and acquire and acquire 
and accumulate and claw for more, for more of, of something. And like Solomon, it might be wisdom or knowledge or understanding. It might be the, the fleeting pleasures of this world. It might be an obsession with your work and all that you can accumulate because of it. And it might be something else still. What he's saying is it's always better to have that one hand open with tranquility, with peace, than two fists clawing for more and more and more. Extinguish the fire to acquire. That's the first part. And instead, embrace the grace of God. What is grace? Grace is an undeserved, free gift. That's what grace is. An undeserved, free gift. And what Koheleth wants us to see and understand and appreciate are all of the simple gifts and pleasures that God sends our way just because. Because he loves us and in his wisdom, he's decided that he wants to. How many of you as mothers and fathers give good gifts to your kids just because? That's what he does. And so what, what Koheleth wants us to understand is what we eat, the good food that we're going to go and leave this room and go enjoy, that is a grace. And what we drink, whether it's a, a nice glass of wine or a, a soda, whatever it might be that you enjoy, that is a grace. And delighting in the work of our hands and in the warmth of the sun and in the beauty of the ocean and the smell of the trees, all of that, the joy of our families on Father's Day, all of that is a grace. He says, embrace that. Extinguish the fire to acquire and embrace those free gifts. Embrace the grace of God. You know, this morning as we began, I talked about how those, those 10 or 15 years of our life can shape so much of who we are. And I was kind of talking about musicians and so on and, and how peculiar it must be to be a traveling musician, 70 years old, your hair is gray or, or missing, <laughs> and your joints are squeaky, but you're still traveling around the world and you're, you're playing songs that you wrote in your 20s. And as I was in Ecclesiastes this, this week, there's one song, one artist that really came to my heart and in my mind that uh, I want to share with you a little bit as I reflect. Because I think this song and this person and tone encapsulates so well what, what Ecclesiastes is all about. This, this, this strange and peculiar but powerful book. How many of you know who Johnny Cash is? Remember that name? In about 1993, Johnny Cash was playing at a small rinky-dink venue in Southern California. He was 63 years old on the downside of his career, and someone came up to him after the show and said, there's a producer here who wants to meet with you. The producer's name was Rick Rubin. And uh, so he said, I don't, I don't know who that is, but I'll, I'll go ahead and meet with them. At the time, Rubin was in his early 30s. He was uh, notable for, for producing records with like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and, and Beastie Boys and so on, like had nothing to do with someone like Johnny Cash. Cash described him as a, as a barefoot, ultimate hippie. That's what he saw in Rick Rubin. But Reuben wanted to work with Cash because he saw him as somebody important, somebody who wasn't doing their best work any longer. But to him, like when you sing a song that says, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, that was compelling. That was interesting for Reuben. And he wanted to kind of explore that a little bit more. He thought it would be interesting to people because most people don't sing stuff like that. And he wanted to, to capture that voice in Cash once again. And what was strange about Johnny Cash it, that was so complicated but, but appealing 
was that Cash had become this notable Christian who was good friends with Billy Graham and traveled around and did stuff with him, and yet to, he had this appeal to secular audiences as well who found his, his lyrics and, and roughness around the edges so relatable. And so this relationship formed, and eventually they ended up producing like five albums together, uh, some combination of original music that Cash had written and never released before, and also some covers of some other songs. But the, the, the top of it all, the peak of it all, was, was a surprise. Uh, Cash ended up doing a cover of a Nine Inch Nails song called Hurt. How many of you have ever heard Johnny Cash's version of Hurt? I love this song. Even though it wasn't written by him, it was, he made it his own. If you've ever heard the Nine Inch Nails version, it's way different. Because he sung this song like a man who had lived and who had gained some wisdom and insight into this life that we live. He wasn't 70 singing a song of a 20-year-old he was 70 singing a song of a 70-year-old. And to me, that fit. It connected. I wanted to hear what a 70-year-old has to say about life. And so this week, as that song came to mind, I discovered something equally powerful. I discovered his, his music video. And uh, I just sat with this, and I watched, and I wept. I, I wept as I saw these, these powerful images of a man who had been young, who had seen folly, who, who had seen wealth, who had seen pleasure, who had endured pain. And now here he was in what would turn out to actually be the final year of his life, sitting in his mansion among all of his awards, all of his accolades that he'd earned, and he's celebrated along the way. And what is he doing as you watch him? He's acknowledging the meaninglessness of it, the vapor of it all that it's here and then it's gone like vapor from your breath on a cold morning. When I see this video, I see someone like a Koheleth, someone who has had it all, who's learned the hard way that clawing and clawing and clawing to acquire and acquire and acquire produced nothing of real value in his life. That in the end, if you had asked Cash what was meaningful, he would have told you it was his relationship with God and the simple joys that we receive with an open palm, with tranquility, that finally helped him see real life. Extinguish the fire to acquire. Embrace the grace of God. As we close, I'm mindful of Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he begins to speak to the masses about the, same very, the very same facet of human nature. This desire to, to worry and to claw and to scrape and acquire all in an effort to be in control. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothes. He says, look at the birds. Look at the birds in the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them with an open palm, an open hand. Are you not much more valuable than they? And so can anyone, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And he concludes, instead he says, Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness, 
And all of these things will be given to you in an open palm as well. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I gotta tell you, as I read that, it sounds an awful lot like something Solomon would say. In fact, in verse 29, in that same passage, he mentions Solomon. The hand that does not worry about life, about what we eat or what we drink, or about the clothes that we wear that does not store up in barns, but trusts God to meet all of our needs, looks an awful lot like an open palm with peace and tranquility. Not two hands always grasping for more. That, my friends, is what daily bread is all about. And that is what the Israelites got wrong in the desert when they kept gathering more manna than they were supposed to. And so for this Father's Day, as we, as we close out, I'm reminded that, that wisdom, like real wisdom, the kind you get from a seasoned grandfather who is wise, would encourage us, would encourage the youth in this room and those that you engage in life to extinguish the fire to acquire and embrace the grace of God. And I've got to tell you, the greatest grace that there is in this world is the free gift of eternal life that is brought to us only by the cross and what Jesus did on it. And so if the Spirit has been working in you this morning in some way, shape, or form, I pray that it has, and you found yourself thinking, you know what, I don't really want to be part of this rat race anymore. I see that it's vapor. I see that it's here. And every time I try to grasp it, it's gone. I can never grab hold of it. If that's you this morning and you want one palm open with tranquility and peace that is found only in the cross of Christ, you have a free invitation to that this morning. You can be baptized into Jesus. You can receive the grace that is found only in him. If you would like to give your life to Christ this morning, I want to invite you as we stand and we sing. You can speak to me here in the front row. You can talk to me after service today. I want to invite you to stand right now, and I'm going to, I'm going to say these words of blessing over you like I always do. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you what? peace. Let's sing, church.